to see you guys. We're going to make our way in Philippians chapter 2, so we'll continue our journey through Paul's letter to the church there in Philippi. And as you guys head towards Philippians chapter 2, if you make your way to Ephesians, you need to go right, and if you hit Colossians, you need to go left in your New Testament. But as you guys head that direction, let me just remind you that the theme of the letter is joy. That Paul's writing this letter to the church there in Philippi, and uh, over 16 times he mentions this word, uh, joy or rejoicing. And yet, as he mentions this, it's important to note that Paul is talking about joy in spite of the circumstances that he's experiencing. And, And it's important to understand that joy is not the same as happiness. That happiness is emotional, it's based upon how I feel, but joy is actually based upon who I have Uh, my trust placed in. That joy can be had in spite or regardless of my circumstances. And Paul can write about this because here's a guy who is in jail currently. He's currently in a Roman jail. He's awaiting uh, an audience with Caesar Nero. And yet he writes this letter to a group of people in Philippi who are experiencing persecution. And he's writing it about how they can have uh, joy. And the best acronym for the word joy that I've ever heard is, is this. It's, it's Jesus, others, and you. And when we can remember that, when we can focus in on this is where joy really resides, it's, it's in Jesus, and then secondly, it's caring for and serving others, and then lastly, it's uh, you. So often we want to put ourselves first, and it's amazing how quickly uh, our joy, our better set, our happiness, goes, uh, it goes right down the drain. But when we put our our focus in, our our joy is centered on Jesus and taking care of others becomes symbiotic to that or or synonymous with that. We desire then to take care of others. Then then the real issue is, do I trust God enough that He's going to take care of me? And that's really the issue that we have so often when it comes to putting ourselves last. It's do I trust that God actually has my best interest in mind? Do I trust that He is going to take care of me? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves because if I do trust Him, then it shouldn't be too big of a thing to ask Him to be the one to take care of me, to supply all that I need. And so as Paul is writing to them, and he began chapter 2, and we covered this a couple weeks ago, what, what he does is he gives an example of Jesus as ultimately the one who gives of Himself as an example for us to understand what it looks like to lay ourselves down or to lay ourselves aside, that what we found in chapter 2 was that Jesus there emptied Himself at the beginning of the chapter. That being uh, on par, on the same plane as God, He was equal to God. It wasn't robbery for Him to be equal with God, and yet he, He emptied Himself is what Paul writes, the great emptying or the great kenosis. And this idea isn't that he emptied himself of his position or his deity. He was still God in the flesh. What he emptied himself of was his power, his superhuman God powers, and instead relied upon the will of the Father completely. Jesus did nothing of his own will while he was here on earth. He only did what the Father directed him to do, powered by the Holy Spirit. By the way, the same tools we have available to you and I. We have access to the Father to, to submit to His will, and we can have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. 
And so we have these same tools available that Jesus showed us how he used them. But the key is Jesus was willing fully and completely to submit himself to the will of God. He trusted that God knew what was best, and so he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, which, by the way, is exceedingly and abundantly both painful and utterly humiliating. And this is maybe the least favorite part of uh, humility for any of us, is that so often humility comes at the hands of humiliation. We don't like that. We don't want to talk about that. Our flesh completely despises that, and yet... As we are humbled, it it most often comes at the hands of being humiliated. And Jesus was completely humiliated there on the cross, and yet, because He was willing to submit Himself to the will of the Father to be humbled so that you and I could have an opportunity to eternal life, by the way, as He humbled Himself, He was for all of eternity exalted. And this is what Paul is trying to drive at, to get the Philippians to understand that as they humble themselves, there's an opportunity for all of eternity to be exalted. And so what Peter actually writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 is this. Chapter 5, verse 5, excuse me. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed in humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. If you're an underliner, important to underline that part. In due time. Casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Back again to this idea of trust. Do I trust that He is going to take care of and care for me? I can cast my cares upon Him if I trust Him to be a a good, good Father like He proclaims to be. So all that leads us to verse 12 of the second chapter where we read, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so we begin tonight with this word, therefore. And you guys are becoming Bible scholars, so you know when you read the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it therefore? It always refers us back to the previous passage where Paul is explaining the humility of Jesus and the ultimate exaltation that he received because he was willing to be humbled. So in light of Jesus' tremendous humility, he's now encouraging them to go work out their own salvation. Now, it's important to note that as Paul writes that, he doesn't write that you are to go out and work for your salvation. That would imply that you are actually going out and earning it, that you're somehow doing something in order to deserve it. He also doesn't say you should go work on your salvation. Again, the idea, if he said that, would be you have some part to play that you can do something in order to be good enough, to act good enough, to earn your salvation, and nothing could be further from the truth. What Paul writes is you should go work out your salvation. The idea being, if you decided to get a membership at, say, the the YMCA, right? It's almost summer. Yesterday it felt like summer. Today, whoop, winter again. But yesterday it felt like summer. And you know what? It's time to be suns out, guns out, baby. I'm going to the Y. I'm getting out there. Going to do, actually, they caught a picture of me up there on the screen at the YMCA. Working out the biceps a little bit, right? We got the beach muscle. It's time to work out our muscles. But here's the thing. Um, I didn't I didn't work for those. I didn't create the muscle. 
I didn't attach the muscle to the bone. I, I, I didn't have anything to do with the creation of it. it. It's simply an exercising of what God has given me. That's the idea that Paul is driving at with our salvation. We are to work out our salvation. We are to work out the, the faith that God has given to each and every one of us. Every one of you here tonight and anybody watching online, you are each given a measure of faith. Your faith is not my faith. My faith is different than yours. You have been given a measure. I have been given a measure. And my responsibility is to work out the measure that God has given. And here's the thing that's awesome about this Christian walk. As you work out your measure of faith, as you strengthen it, guess what He gives you? More faith. He gives you more faith as you work out that faith. And it's incremental as we go. And it's a building up no different than a muscle. If you look at the story in Matthew chapter 14, and I referred to this a couple weeks ago. I don't remember if it was Sunday morning or Wednesday night. But in Matthew 14, there's this famous story. We talked about it as kids downstairs in Bible school. We learned about this story as Jesus is coming across the, the waters of the Galilee and the storm is tossing the disciples to and fro. And what happens is uh, there they are all there, scared to death in the boat. They're going to sink. And what do they see but a ghost? This has got to be a ghost, but it's no ghost. This is none other than the Christ. And as they realize this is Jesus walking on the water, as He tells them in verse 27, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered Him and said, Lord, if it is You, command me to come out to You on the water. And so He said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw that the wind was boisterous and he was afraid, beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. And he says, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so we had this wonderful story of Peter walking on the water. And what you didn't see in that story is Peter turning to the other disciples and going, Hey guys, if you've got the faith, step out with me on the boat. Come on boys, let's go. He's calling us to walk on the water. Because that's not what took place. Jesus gave to Peter a measure of faith. He gave him a call. He gave him a command. And He said to you, come. That measure was given to Peter. He didn't give that same faith to Bartholomew or Andrew or Matthew. He didn't give that word to them. And so many times, this is where it gets mixed up in our heads because we, we have this idea that if I just have enough faith, I can do anything. I can call on God for anything. But here's what you also need. You need God to call you out of the boat. If you step out of the boat and He hasn't called you, if He hasn't given you that measure, uh, you go down to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And so it becomes a very personal relationship that each of us are called to have with God as He gives us faith, as He increases our faith. And it's, I've said it on Sundays before, but it's, it's true and it bears repeating, is that God does not have any grandchildren. He has many children. We're called to be His children. It's a personal relationship, but nobody can do it for you. It's a one-on-one. -on -one. You don't get to inherit this because mom and dad did a good job. Because your kids are doing a good job doesn't mean all of a sudden you're going to squeak in. This is a personal thing. And, and what He's calling each of us to do is exercise the faith that He has given to us individually. Now, as Paul writes this, what he says also is, as you work out your faith, to do it with fear and trembling. And so that what he is getting at is as we work out our faith, the idea is we're to do it soberly. We're to do it seriously. I joke around about a lot of things, but when it comes to my salvation 
in eternity? Well, that's not something to joke around about. Okay, it, that's not time to be at Senior Froggies, you know, down on the beach. Start, Woo! That's not the way we're called to work out our faith. It's it's to be done seriously and soberly with fear and trembling. Paul continues in verse thirteen, for it is God who works in both to will and to do for His good pleasure. As God gives us the faith, He also gives us the desire and then the ability to do the thing He's calling us to do. You've probably heard this phrase before, but again, it bears repeating. He, God does not uh, call the equipped. He equips the called. God doesn't call the equipped. He doesn't call you because you're so super awesome, you got it all together. No, He calls you typically because you don't have it all together. And then as you come to Him exercising that faith, what He does is He equips you as you go and as you grow. And yet, there's typically a time difference between getting a call and getting a vision, and then God takes that time in order to equip you or I to see those things come to pass. One of the greatest examples of this in our Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 37 with the story of Joseph. As we think about the story of Joseph, we'll be there on Sunday mornings in about uh, five months. But eventually, we're in chapter 6. We'll get to chapter 37. But as we get there, what you'll find is that Joseph, at the age of 17, he has this awesome dream, this vision given to him by God. And he sees the, the sun and the moon and the stars, and they're all bowing down to him. And so he goes out, being the little brother to his you know, ten older brothers, and he's got one younger. But he goes out to his brothers like, guys, I had this awesome dream. I call, really, what is it? Oh, you're, you're never going to believe this. You guys, I had this dream about the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing down to me, and you guys are the stars. Great news, you're a star. Isn't that awesome? But you're going to bow down to me. Uh, they were less than thrilled. Not super excited about bowing down to little brother. And so what we find in chapter 42 of Genesis, verse 6, is this. Genesis 42, verse 6 now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold all the people of the land, sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. There's the fulfillment of Joseph's dream. Here's the thing. That didn't happen immediately. If you didn't notice, there's five chapters in between, but there's actually um, 13 years that passed. Um, Joseph's brothers hated his vision so much, they threw him uh, into a pit, sold him to Midian slave traders, told his dad that he was dead, uh, to which he found himself in the house of Potiphar, where Potiphar's wife accused him of rape. He winds up in prison, spends multiple years in prison thinking he might get out because he interpreted dreams, spends a couple more years there, only to eventually end up in Pharaoh's house and second in charge of the entire uh, country. All of this fulfillment of the vision that Joseph had gotten, it took over a decade. It involved pits, slavery, and prison in the meantime. And so, what I have found is as God gives us a vision, typically there is a period of time that passes. We don't like the idea of waiting for things to come to pass. We like immediate fulfillment. And yet what we find is that God's desire in our life as He trains us and raises us up is to be patient. There's that word we love so much. And yet, in the life of Abraham, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15, and so after he 
patiently endured, he obtained the promise. After Abraham patiently endured, he received the promises. And this is the same call you and I have on our life, to patiently endure while God equips us and sets things up and puts things into place for him to ultimately fulfill often the thing he gave us years, maybe even decades before. And so, Paul's encouraging them as they go in Philippi. Now, back to verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, everybody loves this verse. Paul is encouraging them, as you go about, as you're patiently waiting, the thing you love so much, I want you to also do it without uh, complaining, without disputing. But the reality is a surrendered life is one that does not dispute or complain about what God is doing. For this same family that Joseph was a part of, Jacob and all his sons and their family, they make their way down to Egypt where Joseph is in charge so they can be protected during this famine. What we find is 70 people go down to Egypt to live, and 400 years later in the time of Moses, the 70 are now uh, over 2 million people that God delivers as an entire nation to bring them out of Egypt in the most miraculous of ways, delivering them from slavery, from Pharaoh, parting the water, providing uh, water for them in the desert and food and shelter. Uh, if, if it was hot during the day, He provided a cloud to protect them. Cold at night in the desert, He provided the fire. And you know what they did? Complain. They complained about everything. Complained about the bread from heaven. They desired meat. God gives them meat. They make themselves sick on it. They complained, they complained, they complained. And what we find is because of their complaining, because of their lack of thankfulness and satisfaction, they took an 11-day journey across the desert and stretched it into 40 years of wandering. And this is where complaining and disputing will ultimately get us in this life. Wandering around the wilderness, never satisfied with anything. And so the encouragement here is to be satisfied and to not complain. One of the things that it, it took me a while to do the math, so you can track with me, but because of the 40 years of wandering for this entire generation, they were not able to go into the promised land. But if I did the math right, these men that died out there over the 40 years in the wilderness, that uh, they would have had around 42 funerals every single day in the camp of Israel. Almost every hour, two funerals taking place every hour on the hour because they had made complaining their hobby uh, burying people became their job and the same is true for us if we make complaining our favorite hobby our favorite pastime then uh, burying will be our job it might not look like people it might but it might look like relationships it might look like uh, careers it might look like uh, loved ones, it might it might look like all these things that we we thought we needed so badly uh, eventually will end up being buried, and so the encouragement Paul's giving them is that don't complain. He continues here in verse fifteen: Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. 
Now here's what Paul is saying to these Philippians. By not complaining, by not disputing, you are actually being a light for Jesus. I mean, think about that. Imagine that what it would look like if you didn't complain about the circumstances in your life. If you've ever been to the Walmarts, for example, and you go there, have you ever noticed there's like 312 registers and there's two open, right? There, there, there's like nobody there to help you. You got the self checkout, but if you got a big family and you got two grocery carts full of food, you can't go to no self checkout unless you want to be there for two days. And so there's all these checkout lanes, but nobody there actually working. I don't know about you, but immediately I begin this inside. I want to complain. Like, why can't they find a stinking cashier? They got 312 lanes. And yet, as I'm complaining, what I'm completely forgetting is the fact that oh, God provided so I could have two whole carts worth of food. <laughs> He's provided exceedingly and abundantly more than I could ask or think or imagine. What would that look like instead of complaining about the line that while I was in the line, I actually praised God for His provision? Like, Lord, who am I? I mean, I'm a kid from Clark County. Like the fact that you provided enough food for my family to eat for the next I wish two weeks, but only a week. But nevertheless, here we are. Like you provided this food. Like praise God. Imagine what kind of a testimony that would be to the people you stood with in line. What Paul is saying is we don't have to go out and preach if we just go out and not complain, if we just go out and actually praise God for what He's done, you don't have to preach to people. You don't have to hand out a track. You actually become a light in the darkness by just not complaining. What a beautiful promise. And so, what we find is Paul's encouraging them in this, and he's also coaching them up a little bit. Paul's got a little bit of coaching. Right? He loves racing. And if you ever think about you know, Paul coaching people, I don't know about you, but every coach I ever had in school, for some reason, they always wore those really tight bike shorts. Like, I don't know what that was all about. Like, I don't know why my football coach was determined. And for some reason, Coach Roberts would always put the playbook in the front. Like, I got him in the shorty shorts, and the, it was a weird uh, view. But either way, this is what I have in my head as I'm thinking about this. You've got Coach Paul coaching them up, but here was his desire. His desire was for his team, for these Philippians, to be successful. As a coach, coaching little kids in football, the thing that made me the happiest was to see them go out and get a tackle, to see him score a touchdown. Like, there's no thing that I can describe quite as wonderful as seeing them succeed. What Paul is saying is on the day when Christ Jesus returns, there are going to be rewards handed out. And Coach Paul wants to be on the sidelines cheering those guys on as they begin to get rewards given to them. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's saying, look, I want God to just shell those things out to you. Make it rain. I mean, get those rewards. I want to encourage you to simply exercise your faith, not complaining, and see how God's going to reward you in the age to come. And so Paul's encouraging, again, these Philippians. Now, to verse 17. Yes, and if I, being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And so Paul is awaiting his trial before Caesar Nero. And it's important to understand historically, um, Caesar Nero was considered by 
uh, pretty much every historian to be one of the worst guys that ever lived. Absolutely awful, uh, complete crazy person. If you've ever heard the phrase uh, Roman candles, where it actually came from is Caesar Nero loved to take uh, Christians or anyone that defied the Roman Empire, and he would take a pole and he would impale them alive, uh, coat them in uh, wax, and set them on fire, and then position them throughout his garden where he could ride his chariot around while people yell and scream being burned to death as he rode around naked. A little bit crazy. This is who Paul is awaiting a trial before. And at one word, he's going to be losing his head. And yet what Paul says is, I'm fully prepared to be poured out as a drink offering. He is not concerned one single bit about where he's going to head. He should have, by all accounts, been hitting the panic button. Like, this thing is going to go sideways. It, look, think about all the things that could happen, that might happen, and you just consider where we're at, how often the world just gives us anxiety on top of anxiety with the uncertainty we have to deal with. And yet for Paul, he doesn't view it that way. He views that if God is done with him, and he loses his head, quite literally, God's already shown him where he's going to end up. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul says the things that were seen, the things that were heard were unlawful, illegal for him to even talk about. They were so wonderful. And so he got a little sneak peek into heaven and he shared it with us. But Paul was so confident that he knew no matter what happened, he was going to obtain heaven. So whatever Caesar thought he could do, all he was doing was actually helping Paul get to his final goal, get to his final prize. Verse 19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. And so Paul is commending Timothy, who he's planning on eventually sending to them in order to encourage them. But as he's speaking about Timothy, what he refers to him as is one who is like-minded, like no other. And if you think about all the disciples that the Apostle Paul had around him, he, he only had one Timothy. He had Timothy that he could look at and go, this guy is like-minded. He continues in verse 21. He says, "...for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know His proven character." that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. And so as Paul is thinking about his trial, he's desiring to send his protege. But look at what he says about his great protege. He does not seek his own. This is what made Timothy such a great right-hand man is that he didn't seek after his own. He was willing, like Paul, to submit himself in this Christ-like Way And he trusted Paul's decisions. He trusted Paul as a, as a mentor, as a spiritual father, that he had Timothy's best interest in mind. And yet, this is not the guy that he has delivered the letter to the Philippians. Because Timothy hasn't made it there yet. We're going to see that here in just a minute. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. And yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but 
on me also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. Now, here's the scene. There's this gentleman named Epaphroditus that's mentioned here by Paul. Epaphroditus was actually from Philippi. The Philippians sent him to Rome, to Paul, to take an offering to him, to actually go and encourage the Apostle Paul to to come alongside him and give him words as well as an offering to, to be there with him. But as he comes with this gift, he either got sick on the way, or when he got there, he became sick. But either way, it was it was bad. It was to the point where it looked like Epaphroditus might die. No doubt, back in Philippi, as they got word, they began to gather around and have prayer meetings and lift Epaphroditus up. Like, we've sent this brother, and it looks like uh, he's not going to be with us. He's going to go on and be with Jesus. So this is the scene that's taken place. Now, when you think about that, I don't know about you, but I, I'd ask the question, like, why didn't Paul just pray for him or put his hands on him and heal him? Like, Paul's got this gift of healing. We've seen him exercise time and time again. Like, why wouldn't Paul just reach out and touch someone? You know, reach out, touch him, Paul, heal him up, he'll be all better. And yet, what we find is, um, just like he did with uh, Trophimus in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, where it says he left him there in Miletus sick, or with Timothy who was suffering with his own physical ailments, or even with himself, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, as Paul was praying to the Lord about this thorn in the flesh, it wasn't a matter of, of faith. It was a matter of God's sovereignty. It's important to understand that about healing. It's important to understand that, that it, it has to be inside the will of God. It's a fine thing to pray. We should pray. We should come together. We should lay hands. Don't get me wrong. But here's the thing. It's got to be a part of God's ultimate plan. Now, every one of us in here as a believer in Jesus, I want you to know you will be healed. Whatever thing you're struggling with, you're going to be healed, if not in this life and the life to come. That any healing you receive in this life, it's only temporary anyway. But what we can read from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 is this, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Not we might be healed, could be healed. We are healed by His stripes. As Jesus took the stripes, you and I are healed for all of eternity. But by God's sovereignty, by His ultimate decision-making, him knowing what's best, He does not always heal everyone in this life. And so what should we do? I would recommend we do exactly what Paul did. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, verse 8. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, concerning His own physical maladies. In verse 9, He, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, my strength, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul responded saying, Therefore most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What Paul did is he continued to pray. He prayed until God answered him. And so my recommendation to you, if you've got something on your heart, something you're struggling with, uh, with you, with a family member, whatever the case may be with someone you know or love, uh, pray for them, uh, not just once or even twice or even three times like Paul did. Uh, pray for them 30, 300, 3,000 if you need to. 
Pray until God gives an answer. Paul stopped at three only because God answered him. God explained ultimately what he was up to. He said, look, my grace is sufficient. My, my strength is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. And as Paul received the answer, he realized what God was up to. He didn't sit around and pout about it anymore. He said, I'll, I'll boast then in my infirmities. If this is God's grace poured out of my life, let me brag about what he's up to. And so it wasn't a matter of faith for the Apostle Paul, and it's not a matter of faith in this situation for us either. It's about God's sovereignty. So the encouragement here is pray until you get an answer. Now back to the text at hand. Verse 28, Therefore I sent him, speaking of Epaphroditus, the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because of the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. Epaphroditus was the one that was able to bring back the letter to the Philippians, to his home church, to the people that sent him out to the Apostle Paul. But understand, as this first began, they had a plan. The church gathered between them and Epaphroditus. They had organized this, like, here's the plan. You're going to take the offering. You're going to go to Paul. Not only are you going to deliver the offering, but you're also going to stay there. You're going to minister to him. You're going to spend time with him. And we know, by the way, that he delivered the offering. I didn't read this earlier, but in chapter 4, verse 18, we'll get there in a couple weeks, we read, Indeed, I have all... And abound, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things which, excuse me, the things sent from you, a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. And so, Epaphroditus, you're going to deliver this thing, this sweet smelling aroma, and you're going to hang out there and be a minister to Paul, this great man who planted this church. And then what happened is it didn't work out. <laughs> it didn't work out the way they had it planned. Instead, as Epaphroditus is there, he's sick, nearly dead. The very person he went to minister to ends up ministering to him. Paul ends up praying over and spending time caring for Epaphroditus, as well as most likely Timothy. These guys have to rally around him. And I share all that as I was wrapping up this week thinking about this, because so often what happens is we have these preconceived notions these ideas of how things are going to go. I don't know about you, but I can be elaborate with them. I can come up with all kinds of scenarios and here's what I'm going to do, God, and here's all the ways that this is going to happen. And, and usually I'll pray a prayer like, okay, now bless it. Now go ahead. This is what I'm doing, Lord. Pour out the blessing. And yet, what happens is life gets in the way. More often than not, the things that I had planned, the things that I thought that I was going to do, they don't turn out anything like what I planned. And it can be a real mind job. It can, it can really mess with us because we think we're going to do a right thing. And maybe we even had good intentions. Oftentimes that's the case. Like I, I didn't go about this trying to do bad in this spot. I went about this thing trying to do good. If you've ever been on a mission trip, I mean, I don't know about you, every time I go to help somebody, forget even a mission trip, just going to help someone locally even, how many times do you go to help them and what ends up happening is they actually end up blessing you. 
This is precisely what's taking place here. They're going to help Paul. Paul ends up blessing them. It doesn't turn out the way they thought it was going to turn out. What James says is this concerning our plans. James chapter 4, verse 16. Excuse me, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is a sin. As James is so eloquently and directly to the point, like James can be, what he's saying here is we make all these plans, and yet we leave so little room for flexibility when God changes the plan. And then we get all bent out of shape because it doesn't work out the way we thought it was going to work out. And as Epaphroditus is making his way back to Philippi, Paul knowing that this is likely going to be the case for him as he's feeling perhaps ashamed of having to come back early. Maybe they're going to judge me. Maybe they're going to think this or that. What Paul says is you need to rejoice knowing that God knows what's best. And the life of this young man who ministered to me, yes, he did, and I got a chance to minister to him that God knew what was best. And as he was talking about and bragging about Epaphroditus. I love this part. Because of the work of Christ, verse 30, he came close to death. Not because of his own selfishness, but because of the work of Christ. For each of us, the heart's desire should be to lay down our agenda, to lay down our preconceived notion idea as God exercises his will, as he works things out in our life to lay down our agenda for the work of Christ. Lord, whatever you'd call me to do, this is what I desire to do. Lastly, a quote from Greg Laurie I put up on the screen. God's plans for you are better than any plans you have for yourself. So don't be afraid of God's will, even if it's different than yours. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the grace you have upon us. So often we get ourselves all tangled up in how this is going to go or how that's going to go or how these things are going to transpire and and Lord, we lose sight that it's for the work of Christ. It's, It's the honor to have the ability to just work for You, Lord. That we have this awesome opportunity to come alongside the God of the universe and to be Your hands and feet not as a have-to, but as a get-to in this Christian life. And so, Lord, please come alongside us. Uh, Please continue to direct us and guide us. We need it, Lord. Thank you for these promises from Paul tonight. Thank you for these reminders that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have this wonderful salvation, this gift that you've given us, and now we have an opportunity to exercise it. Lord, encourage us this week as we go to not grumble and not complain. And Father, if we're being honest, it's hard when it's 72 degrees and then it's 22. It's not easy. And so Lord, just help us as we go to not be a people to complain, but instead to praise your name because
who thought it was going to be 72 in February? And so thank you, Lord, for the little things that you do to help remind us of just how good you are and how much you care for us. And lastly, Lord, when the plans change, help us to be confident to know that you know what's best. When the phone call comes and the diagnosis changes and that person is no longer here, Lord, help us to know that you know ultimately what is best. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.